Over the past several years, immigration and health care have been increasingly confounding issues for our nation's lawmakers and policy experts. In many circumstances, like those where a hospital weighs the possibility of surreptitiously transporting a migrant patient back to their country of origin, the two issues overlap, and with medical, legal, ethical, and diplomatic ramifications as well. Are we seeing any progress towards reconciling these two overarching issues in American policy? You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment focused on global medicine. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery and Practicing General Surgeon, and our guest is Dr. Stephen Larson, Assistant Dean of Global Health at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Dr. Larson is also an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and an expert on migrant health. Welcome, Dr. Larson. Thanks for having me. Dr. Larson, do the health care needs of these undocumented immigrants who come to the United States different than, let's say, the population of the United States as a whole? You know, that's a fantastic question. So, you know, when you look at the data and the history of the immigrant population back in the 80s and 90s, again, it was a predominantly male population that were pretty lean coming out of the highlands, working long hours, hard labor. And there's this presence of what's known as the Hispanic paradox or the Latino paradox, which befuddles a lot of researchers in the sense that the first generation of immigrants arrive here in actually pretty good health, very good health compared to their counterparts that have lived in the United States. Uh And over time, that advantage gets washed out and it's puzzling. Some people think it has to do with stress. Some people think it has to do with diet as you abandon a very lean beans and tortillas diet to, you know, big gulps, Big Macs. (laughs) But it's an interesting phenomenon. How much that holds true today, I'm not sure, because now with the most recent wave of immigration, you have men, women, children, all immigrating in mass, and I'm not sure that that advantage is going to be as clear there are distinct needs for the different populations. Back in the uh, around 2001, 2002, the populations that had been predominantly rural-based agricultural industry populations, a funny thing happened with the building boom and food industries, demands for labor in Philadelphia, you suddenly saw a very urbanized Mexican population arriving, not just in Philadelphia, but in the surrounding larger towns. And those needs were going to be clearly different than the guy working on a farm in southern Chester County. And indeed, some of our early work, when we started looking at the issues, for instance, with the women, high levels of domestic abuse, high levels of sexual abuse, you know, just crossing the border alone and ending up in Philadelphia took its toll on them from a a stress perspective and from, you know, the issues related to violence. And what about comprehensive care to those patients' families? Well, it doesn't exist. I mean, there's always the safety net of the public health department, which, you know, it can take two months to get an appointment. Emergency departments, by and large, provide, in most cities across the nation, a safety net, an umbrella. But that's not comprehensive, long-term care. That's absent. Do you ever see situations where the one sick patient is used as an excuse to repatriate the whole family? 
I have not seen that, but that's an interesting thought. You know, so you'll read about in the papers, for instance, when ICE makes a raid on a meatpacking plant in Iowa, and 400 people suddenly become identified, and they'll be repatriated, but the challenge comes to the rest of the family members. You may have several children who were born in Mexico living in the same house with several children who were born in the United States. They're all siblings. They're in the same family. The siblings in the United States don't get repatriated. So it's a fascinating conflict. Are most of the repatriated decisions still in court in terms of appeals? I think that that article touched off a real raw nerve And in the sense that almost immediately, the California Medical Society condemned the practice. Within the past two to three weeks, the AMA has sat down and created a task force to address this. And I think people haven't been aware of the magnitude of the problem. But when you're dealing with 11 million people who are undocumented, you're going to have more than just one incident of a gentleman being repatriated to Guatemala. And I think people can step back and say, oh, yeah, there was a case. I remember that. And there probably was silence. It just never really rose up and there was no advocacy. And it really never registered on people's minds that this was an issue. Do patients ever voluntarily leave for their home country? I have actually had several patients, yes. In those situations where I've identified somebody with a you know, very catastrophic, you know, I can think of a guy with Eisenmenger syndrome. Uh He arrived here to work, worked about two months, and then suddenly had a seizure, and it turned out he had a cranial abscess from a septic emboli that, you know, went right to left, and the long and short of it is, short of a heart-lung transplant, which would have been impossible, it was very clear that he wasn't going to be able to stay. And many of these, there's a sort of an accepted fate that they're going to go back to their countries, and that's going to be it. If you have just joined us, you are listening to a special segment, Focus on Global Medicine, on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and our guest is Dr. Stephen Larson, Assistant Dean of Global Health at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Dr. Larson is also an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and an expert on migrant health. We're discussing issues of immigration and health care in the United States. Dr. Larson, let me throw you a curveball. Let's say if there's an uninsured American who was in another country and they're stuck in that hospital abroad, is there any comparison to our situation that we're discussing now? You know, I'm not sure that there is. And for the simple reason that, you know, the same way we don't dump patients, you know, we have to go from a, a lower to a higher level of care. For the most part, when you're in a different country, barring Europe, obviously, you know, you're in Mexico and you're on vacation and you get hit by a surfboard and, you know, you're knocked unconscious, you're, you know, you're going to go once you're stabilized to a higher level of care. So I'm not sure how that translates, honestly. And again, understanding the origins of this labor force of these individuals and the fact that there are invisible, anonymous You know, as I heard somebody describe them, peasants, there's just, there's no face to them. And that was a description from the former minister of health in Mexico. You know, I'm not sure that the advocacy, the resources, I'm not sure that you're going to a higher level of care and moving it from the U.S. to those countries. What about the consulates and the immigration authorities? Do they help out? Are they, are they factors in this process? 
It's fascinating. As I mentioned, the situations where I've had support has been at the terminal end of it when it's very clear that a patient is going to expire or has expired. And in that case, for instance, the Mexican population, those individuals are assisted in getting back to their countries. Those individuals who are chronic in bed, I don't know about those situations, but I've certainly gotten assistance from the consulate with cases that are either fatal where death happened and the body is repatriated to occasionally a case where somebody has an illness. It's just, it's very clear that they need to go home. In these situations, is there any oversight from a central governmental agency or an advocacy group? No, no. And, and you know, I, as I talked to Ms. Sontag about it, I think that this is the area that we as physicians need to be certain everybody's on the same page. I, I mean, I've dealt with many, many cases where it's very clear that the trajectory of a patient's condition is going to take them down a road where it's not survivable. You know, and we'll sit down and we'll have a heart-to-heart. I mean, I've had patients cry about not being able to work and provide for their families. But that discussion takes place, and everybody's on board in terms of a plan. My hope would be that, you know, what comes out of all of this discussion is that advocacy becomes a part of that decision-making, as well as the economics. I mean, certainly hospitals can't shoulder the burden economically. The degree to which lawyers need to be involved, it's going to be a big grouping of people that need to sit down at the table and discuss this. And it might end up being on a case-by-case basis because this is not, you know, certainly not the norm, repatriation. It happens, but I don't think the volume is is quite there. And I think it could be managed on a a case-by-case basis. But there needs to be involvement from all the parties. The, The federal government needs to become involved, for instance, because the resources that need to be allocated for this need to come from on high. Let's talk about a hypothetically difficult situation. You've got two uninsured patients. One is an American citizen, and the other is an undocumented immigrant. And let's say in that situation that you have a skilled facility or some sort of facility that will accept one of the two. What do you do? Flip a coin? Do you determine on medical priority? Does citizenship make a difference? Where does that role fall into place? Well, I would imagine citizenship would make the difference unless there was a guaranteed payer guaranteeing the resource allocation for that undocumented person. And finally, Dr. Larson, from a personal perspective, what made you go into this area? And certainly we need many more like you. What were the reasons that you went into this area? That's a great question. I had begun traveling and working in Central America in the late 80s, early 90s as a student, as a resident, and then as a faculty person just trying to figure out a way to get involved and become active in global health. And when it became apparent that my academic responsibilities required me to be centered in Philadelphia, you didn't need to go north-south. You could go anywhere north-south, east, or west of the city and find an immigrant population that you know, whether it was Southeast Asian population or Western Africa, you could find a population where you could practice your language, your cultural competency, all these issues. And so for me, the logical piece of the puzzle was a Latino population and 45 miles from the city, there it was. You ever get frustrated by all this? No, no. You know, I'll be honest with you, over the years, you know, the people who are engaged in this conduct themselves with a certain esprit de corps. And... Uh-huh. The patients, by and large, 
contrary to the myth, are not here to take advantage of the system. In fact, my experience has been that they'd much rather not be sick because being sick means diminished work time, work time which provides them with the money to support themselves and their families. So by and large, they'll oftentimes neglect their health until they're really sick. And to see that, you know, again, these guys are in ways heroes, and you know, we tend to overlook that. It just, for me, it was a place to, you know, use my skills and get involved. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Stephen Larson. We've been discussing issues of immigration and health care in the United States. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to a special segment focused on global medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. And thank you for listening.